You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Triple R's radiotherapy program. Sunday morning's medical answer to Q&A. If Q&A was made up of a panel of self-important psychiatrists answering questions that nobody's asked. Thank you to the gloriously salty marinara team for another great show. They've now left the studio to go surfing, no doubt, on this gorgeous Melbourne morning. But right now, you're here with me, Dr Anabolics, and the mag- magnificent McZiff, still wearing his kilt and bagpipes after this weekend's military tattoo, and the wonderful SK who sadly has quite a lot of twisty stains on his tracky and T-shirt this morning, an unmistakable sign that he's been on sabbatical leave for far too long. <laughs> Nevertheless, we've had coffee and done our teeth and we're ready with our little team's first outing for 2016. Today we're going to have a look at a best-selling book about four New Yorkers called A Little Life and hear what it and McZiff have to tell us about trauma and abuse. I've been thinking about vaccinations, or rather the lack of them, and SK is going to regale us with all things cinematic and cerebral as usual. Now, yesterday, when I emailed SK to check that he was available for today, he fired back a deliciously short, sharp reply, just saying, I'm there, baby, which was the sexiest email exchange I'd had all day. (laughs) So so that tiny vibration bouncing between us this morning might be a frisson of sexual tension, or it might be a gravitational wave whacking a tram on Nicholson Street. How would I know? I'm not Einstein. Either way, there's a crackle in the studio. We're all feeling buzzed, and it's going to be a ripper show. Welcome aboard. How are you, McZiv? Oh, look, I'm wonderful. Um, Edinburgh Military Tattoo. Wow. How about that? Yeah. It really does it for you? Not at all. But uh, <laughs> uh, lots to catch up about. Um, uh, there there's is. been a lot on. I mean... Good news, bad news, lots happening. Well, it's been a long time since we've been together, hasn't it? It's ha- a couple of months. A very long time, very long time. And you know, and I was just, uh, as I was sitting in the cafe across the road, <coughs> ordering my coffee, I was reading the Sunday Age. And the two top stories in, uh, <coughs> in this morning's paper, excuse me, were to do with mental health issues. So um, one of them sort of um, really piqued my interest, and that's, uh, um, and we don't know anything about this really, that Gary Lyon, the footy show presenter and former Melbourne great, so a hero of mine, um, has been taking, uh, has been uh, forced into taking indefinite leave with a mental health issue of unclear nature. And... Uh, I make no comment whatsoever about uh, whatever his issue is other than to wish him well and hope that he recovers very quickly. I do have <clears throat> a concern about the the use of the overarching term mental health issue or mental illness without any specificity. It's as ludicrous as saying someone, I've got a physical health problem. We don't really, we don't know. And I think that, that one of the risks of using the term um, in the somewhat flippant way that it does get used, is to perhaps um, diminish the severity, the, the the significance of some very serious mental health issues, lumping everything in together as though all mental illness is the same, all mental health issues are the same. So that's a that's a concern for me. Is, um, is it a privacy thing, though? Do you think is, it, is that different to a physical issue? Do we differentiate and say you know we don't we don't specify? I'm sure we, I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do, and I think that that's part of the residual stigma that um, that mental health issues carry with them. But um, it's it's not all an upside. So I think um, organisations like Beyond Blue have done a wonderful thing about popularising um, 
the, the notion and, and increasing the understanding, community understanding of depression and some other mental health issues, but at the expense of everything being lumped in together and, uh, and I think a, a diminution of the um, sophistication of the understanding of individual conditions and the, the gradation of severity within those. What about USK? Do you have some uh, interesting things over the over the last few weeks you've been noticing? Well, I've just got some observations on the show so far this morning. I mean, uh, your, your reflection on my email as being the sexiest email you've uh, received all week. <laughs> Maybe a sad <coughs> comment. Uh, but just speaks to the fact that your spam filter is clearly much more efficient than mine. <laughs> and because if I, I always enjoy hearing you talking, you know, the, the way in which you use language and your idiosyncratic use of words, there's combinations of words in there that I've uh, I've rarely heard like uh, the use of the term former Melbourne great. <laughs> no, uh, what, what does that... I, I haven't heard that expression in, in decades, but... No, no, no that... Well, you see, the former, former is, is, is important, but, but we are on the cusp. We are on the very cusp of, of, of glory. Of mediocrity, no, yes, no, this yes, is. Yes. This is the greatest time for a Melbourne supporter. You also did, obs- did observe in your intro, uh, Anabolics, that I'm on, currently on sabbatical, uh, which is great. You know, it's like the boiling frog phenomenon. You don't realise how tough things are in your regular job until you get a chance to stand back and observe it from afar. And uh, mm. unfortunately, my original sabbatical project got knocked back by my sponsoring institution. The, the ambition was to take six months off and write, uh, you know, the book on psychiatry and film uh, because I've doing this for 20 years be a great chance to combine it all together in one volume but uh, I'm actually spending some time uh, coordinating a a national project in dementia at the moment as my sabbatical project we're setting up uh, what's called severe behaviour response teams to go into nursing homes and provide high level behavioural advice to uh, residential care uh, providers who might have a a resident who's uh, troubled by behavioural problems in the setting of dementia so it's quite a worthwhile project and it'll it'll keep me occupied for six months but I am noticing that uh, that life is life is much greener when you're not committed to nine to five. Is this this a project you're working on a federal project or a state project or? I have to go back a step actually it's it's a it's a federal project but it has its roots in a a failed uh, Rudd government era uh, policy, there was something called the the ACFI, the Aged Care Funding Instrument, and uh, nursing homes fill out an ACFI on new residents to determine how much money the Commonwealth should give them for looking after a particular person. And uh, the Rudd government realised that uh, behavioural disturbances in dementia created a significant burden on care providers and that they needed more money to look after people with higher level behavioural needs. So the Rudd government introduced what they call an ACFI supplement and they budgeted $50 million over three years to provide providers with extra money for that. Of course, as soon as they did that, there was a sudden outbreak of severe behavioural disturbance overnight in residential care and everybody's ACFI was uh, suddenly weighted to reflect severe behavioural disturbance. So uh, the budget blew out, I think, within 12 months. It's interesting where humanity meets economy, isn't it? Absolutely. So... uh, with the change of government, I think the, the new government has taken the same quantum of money over a similar period and they're investing it instead in providing uh, high-level behavioural responses provided by an external third party to residential care to try and manage the same problem. So it's a different approach to the same problem but has its roots in failed previous policy. Is there anywhere uh, people could read about this or contribute to thoughts about it or is it more um, still hasn't gone on the shelf yet? It's actually up and running. Uh, I think the successful tenderer 
tender provider was only announced late last year, but the, the service commenced operation at the start of November. They're piggybacked onto the existing uh, DB Mass system, Dementia Behavioural Management Advice Service, that runs in each state. Uh, so when, when DB Mass get a referral that they think is too hard for them, they pass it up. But I think if you Google severe behaviour response teams, you'll find uh, media releases from uh, Susan Lee and, and so forth uh, describing the service and what it hopes to achieve. If anybody who's listening at this time of day is interested in severe behavioural disturbance <laughs> in dementia, they're probably far more interested in Gary Lyon. <laughs> it only took us till 10.07 to get to the football in 2016. That, I think, is a record. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. McZiff, you're going to tell us about a fascinating book that you read. Well, well, I'm not going to tell you so much about the book because I, okay. I don't want to spoil it. Um, okay, yep. Um, but over the summer break, I did have the opportunity to read this uh, remarkable book called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. It's an epic, painful journey exploring the lives of uh, of four young men in contemporary uh, United States, uh, particularly in, in New York, um, but primarily focusing on the life of one of these Jude who, who, who struggles to um, to cope with the effects of sustained developmental trauma. And uh, I'm not going to spoil things for those who haven't read this outstanding novel, but if you do enjoy getting into the heart and mind of someone... Um, this book, more than most I've read in recent years, it, it takes you on an unforgettable, um, if very painful and at times gut-wrenching journey. Mm. And, um, you, you know, when you work in clinical practice, um, particularly um, in psychotherapy, you think you've heard everything, but uh, so, uh, then you read something um, and the way some people are affected and uh, it, it can... Um, I, I've... I, I can't remember the last time that I've actually audibly gasped whilst reading a book, and uh, and this certainly did this to me. So um, I've heard countless stories in clinical practice of the long-term impact of childhood and, and developmental trauma and neglect, abuse in its many and varied forms, mistreatment. And it can be difficult to understand why people who have, uh, who have endured a traumatic series of developmental experiences travel a particular trajectory in their lives um, particularly for those who come from the relative good fortune of a non-abusive background it's hard to understand why people behave in a certain way why they demonstrate uh, in particular self-destructive behavioral characteristics and uh, you know why do people make poor decisions why do they make poor relationship choices um, why do they find abusive partners why do they abuse drugs and alcohol um, or put themselves in in harm's way um, why do they overeat why do they gamble why do they bully others on and on and on the the the, the range of behavioral psychological and psychosocial consequences of um, traumatic developmental experiences um, it, it's manifold so we know that early life experiences are critical in the process of developing a robust sense of self and if as we grow up we are exposed to inconsistent <clears throat> unreliable neglectful abusive caring parenting experiences these 
experiences tend to be internalized by the vulnerable individual and uh, and what 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 happens is that we know i mean we're we learn logic from a very young age so we know that if we're punished for something that we've done wrong that actually makes sense and in a behavioral sense we we link the two if I do this, if I steal money or if I lie or if I push over my little brother or sister, I'm going to get chastised or punished. But if you're mistreated in the absence of having done something wrong, how does one conceptualize that? And invariably, the conceptualization is, well, it, it wasn't anything that I did. It must be me. So this is the logical conclusion. It's not what I've done. It's who I am. I'm bad. I'm unworthy. I must deserve to be treated so badly. Sometimes, of course, that's backed up by that spoken phrase from people living around them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is so much at the center of, uh, of emotional abuse. And, uh, and so... If that becomes your default position, it's not hard to see how one might undervalue oneself and then live with the consequences of, uh, of low self-esteem. And, uh, and all of those consequences tend to be played out in, uh, in countless domains, but in particular in, uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships and in the way we relate to ourselves. And uh, the... Beyond that, beyond the low self-esteem, is the the domain of, of self-harming behavior. So, and 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 that makes sense because what else does a not good enough person deserve than to be treated badly by themselves? And we know that this is not just. It starts off as a psychological process, but it affects and damages the vulnerable brain. Trauma damages brains. And, uh, and we've moved beyond the old, um, um, the, the, the model of nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture. It's nature influencing, it's nurture influencing nature. And, uh, and there's this dynamic interplay between the two. And so once brain changes have occurred, then comes the difficult process of, uh, of repair. And, uh, patients often ask me, how, you know, how, how can I, change things? How can I change this pattern of behavior? This is what I've been doing for so many years. And uh, I at times use a, um, a sort of analogy. Imagine you've learnt, relearnt, and then overlearnt a particular belief in a brain sense, this reinforcement creating the equivalent of a thick coaxial cable, a sort of a hard-wired thick cable. And, uh, and it is what you automatically think, you know, night follows day. And, uh, and imagine that that represents the belief, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. And then you contrast this with some new information. You are worthwhile and you deserve to be treated well. How do you conceptualize that? It's just like a single fiber optic, uh, just a tiny little fiber, and it's of no challenge. You've raised a bit of a conundrum for me at this point, because you've you've raised the issue of nature versus nurture on the one hand and have also introduced this concept of trauma, particularly at very young ages, producing developmental changes in the brain. And for me, this raises the issue of how much biology or how much brain is involved versus how much psychology 
is involved because you know the way in which you deal with uh, people who are affected by trauma in in therapy is by psychological means if there's a degree of developmental hardwired brain change and structural change in particular can that be modified by psychology and how has the contradiction resolved you know i think that that just as uh as trauma causes brain change we we know increasingly about you know we've been talking uh here and uh, all over the place about neuroplasticity and about the fact that that just because there there is brain change doesn't mean that that's necessarily permanent that and the process of therapy of, of effective talking therapies has been demonstrated to be able to ameliorate some of the of the trauma and 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 that's so 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 what you have is this going back to the the analogy so you've got this thick coaxial cable i'm not good enough and you've got this new information maybe i am good enough and uh, and you'll always go to the to the default position but the 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 process of 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 sort of unpacking the belief system particularly when it, it is representative of, of of what has in fact happened in the brain it's a it's a long it's a slog it's it's not going to be easy because the formation of that that pattern of thinking has taken it it doesn't hasn't happened as a result of one individual moment of trauma we know that we know that it's recurrent trauma and it's the way that that's that is dealt with so you know there are plenty of people countless people who have had abusive experiences but who have it's been handled in a sensitive and compassionate way within a good family structure and it's able to be dealt with and by dealt with another phrase that too which um kind of bridges your two ideas you're raging he- raising here is not necessarily that it could be changed but it can be managed i think that's another word that some people you know later in life can intellectualize and find out what has happened to them understand that process and say well i always you know when the red light goes on i always say stop that's my automatic response but actually now i think about it i may have to re- relook and think about this particular situation requires a green light i've got to rethink that i know i'm going to go back to that but i've got to rethink that so you can manage sometimes these that, things that, if that you can is, reflect on them i, I I think that that is absolutely at the core of so much of what happens in therapy. What, what, what people do is they have these automatic negative thoughts or beliefs and th- that is equivalent to the default position. If you make that conscious by whatever process, by whatever therapeutic endeavor is undertaken, if you make that, that which is automatic, that which is unconscious, conscious, then you have an opportunity to challenge it. So, okay, uh, yeah, I can see that I do that. I know that that's how I feel, but maybe there is an alternative. The very first step is to be able to acknowledge that the way that you're thinking, that the way that you're feeling may not be... Uh, inevitable. Maybe there is an alternative. And if you can conceptualize the, the, that there is an alternative, that there is another pathway that you may go down, then you have the opportunity to strengthen that alternative pathway. You may not completely be able to remove all remnants of the trauma that you have experienced and the associated behaviors, but you may then provide yourself with a choice. And that is what the therapeutic environment fundamentally is about providing, a safe place where the alternate consideration can be gradually 
developed. I know we hear that a lot in the domestic violence therapy sp- uh, sphere, where people, where women who've been particularly abused and traumatised, have uh, you know, uh, with uh, damaging partners who re- reinforce some of these negative comments to them and negative beliefs, and for women to sometimes get out of that and to start to say, "Look, I now I understand what was happening." It often takes quite a bit of therapy for them to rethink that automatic uh, response that he's hitting me because I'm no good. He's, he's you know, I'm, I'm unlikable because I'm fat. I'm. He's, I, I'm a bad wife because, he, you know, all those statements that get put to people sometimes in those environments and are followed by abuse, it takes a little while for people to actually to unpack those and say, I don't have to think that. That's not actually right. I might, I might respond in a different way when he says that next time. It's, it's quite a lot of work. For Absolutely. Um, and, and then take it a step further, even if there is not that sort of partner, but you are giving yourself those same messages hour after hour, minute after minute, day after day, yes. then, you, you know, you're, you're actually working with yourself. You are the enemy, but you are also the ally, mm. ally in association with the therapist. Because if when you're articulating your approach to treatment of such issues, you're very much couching them in cognitive behavioural type terms, you know, recognising an automatic negative thought, challenging it rationally and trying to replace it with a more objectively verifiable, reasonable thought. You're also alluding to the fact that this process can be a very long-term thing, but you know, true practitioners of CBT you know, might argue that this sort of therapy can be delivered in a very time-limited, sort of 12-week type block, and, and that's all you need. Is, is that not the case? And cannot people learn these skills in a short period of time and go home and reinforce them and do it to, to some extent independent of long-term therapy? I'm being very mindful of, the, um, of, of, of not throwing my hat in any particular um, uh, in, in the direction of any particular th- uh, therapeutic modality. I mean I think that, that all types of therapy have benefits. I come from a more classically um, psychodynamic therapeutic background and that was my training and that's the way that I've worked. I also have a great deal of respect for cognitive behaviour therapy and I think, it, it, I mean it's interesting, at the heart of of good psychodynamic psychotherapy, there's a lot of CBT, there's a lot of cognitive behavior therapy, and at the end of the day, much of the change incorporates CBT-type principles. And similarly, at the heart of good CBT, there is a very, very substantial element of psychodynamic um, psychological underpinnings. Um, all of the of the newer forms of therapy that people are alluding to these days, the, the group therapies, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy for people with borderline personality disorder, they all have at their core the establishment of a therapeutic relationship, the use of the relationship as a means of, of uh, incorporating a new way of thinking because that's what is, is how you get to that may vary depending on the type of therapy that is undertaken. But I'm not saying that any one particular form of therapy is necessarily better. And, and each individual, I think, has to find their, their, uh, what, what is right for them. I think that's right. The, the individual differences between this is huge. I've, se- I've seen people turn massive amounts of their life around after a single serious heavy session. <laughs> you know, okay. And sometimes 
sometimes that's all you get. Sometimes you get one bite at someone. You see them once. And I have seen people make huge changes after sort of having a penny drop session with, um, you know, working on things well. So it's a, it's and a wide conversely, spectrum. And conversely, there are people who've been in therapy for 20 years who've not made the change. That's right. So, you know, it, it, it's about making sure that whatever therapy you get into is the therapy that works for you. Is there a therapeutic uh, aspect to this book? Do people come to therapy or is it more about the pre-therapeutics? Or don't, can't you tell us? It's too much of a spoiler. I, I, I don't want to spoil it. Why, Mix, if do you in your free time choose to pick up a book like this, which in itself, you know, you've said it makes you gasp out loud at times. It sounds very much like a busman's holiday for you to spend your summer break reading a book like this. It is an outstanding question, and it, it sent, this book sent me to um, uh, to uh, just a good detective story next, and, and some sort of trashy magazine. I mean, it, it really, yeah. Uh, I'm, I've got mixed feelings about the fact that I read it. Well, the, the human mind is pretty endlessly fascinating, though, mm. isn't it? You've oh, got, yeah. It gets you yeah. in. Look, thanks so much, Mixif. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, I thought we might look at a couple of things that are in the paper this week because we've heard um, McZiff and SK that there's a couple of outbreak, a minor outbreak of measles in the Brunswick area. Now, we, we're sitting in the Brunswick area uh, and there's four different adults apparently were diagnosed with measles. Now, um, they were all over the age of 20, I believe, and I don't know the details of the cases, of course. It's not clear where the primary contact has been, has occurred. The doctors looking after them that were published in the paper said they uh, thought they, they had not found kind of patient zero. Somewhere there is an infected person who has had contact apparently with these four individuals but they didn't know where the link was and they didn't know whether any more cases were going to become apparent. Now, and also in the paper this week, we had a report that um, a Melbourne uh, mother who belongs to a, an anti-vax group in inner-city Melbourne reported that her own child um, had developed measles, a 12-month-old child, old child had developed measles. And this was apparently... Um, uh, uh, Put out into the social media on her on the on a secret on, a, on not a secret a silent Facebook page amongst a group. The private, I guess a private is the word, isn't it? Private Facebook page against a group of people who haven't vaccinated their children, and it was I guess kind of leaked by somebody to to the press. And you know, fair enough. So just, just try, I just wanted to ask you a few things and see what your thoughts are about uh, some of these issues. Um, to remind people, measles is a very highly contagious viral disease which only occurs in humans, with children being especially vulnerable. Other people who are vulnerable are also those who have immune dysfunction, uh, people who've got AIDS, for example, or who are immunocompromised for some reason, and people who are pregnant, in fact. And children in Victoria are eligible to receive two doses of anti-measles vaccine at 12 and 18 months. And this offers a, a very high level of uh, lifelong protection. It's not, in, not complete, but it's very high level. Now, if you get measles, not only is it uh, exceptionally unpleasant illness, if anyone's ever... Probably most of us haven't seen people with measles because it's, it's pretty rare now, but um, you don't have to go back through many generations to have people remind you how what a hideous disease this is because it really renders children just so, so sick. lasts about three weeks. And probably the worst aspect of it is that it's associated with a very significant risk of associated illnesses, pneumonia and encephalitis being the two most worrying 
of those. Encephalitis being not, being not meningitis but an actual yes. infection of the brain. It's called SSPE, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis and I um, it, this has always been a kind of a, a, a very vivid memory of mine when I did my uh, time at the kids hospital when I was a junior intern and there was a young boy of 10 who had been admitted with uh, encephalitis due to measles and uh, he was essentially almost brain dead and had been in hospital for uh, many many months and didn't look like he was going to ever leave and I've never forgotten it and it really has drummed home the, the risk of, of that. It, it is a rare complication but it is a complication common enough to be have most, you know, most of us have seen it somewhere. Now, you know, so why is there this di- this difference between these um, these uh, apparent sets of values? I guess. Um, now, look, we know that if ninety percent of any population of people are immunised, then the rate of against an illness, then the rate of illness in that population is dramatically reduced, and that's known as herd immunity. It's and it's very important in measles. For and I'll explain why. It's because the measles virus lives in the wet mucous membranes of the mouth and nose and pharynx of the person and is spread by coughing and sneezing and it's spread um, in an infectious way for up to three weeks before the uh, rash even starts. So it's very easy to have contact uh, unwittingly with people who uh, may be ill. So if you uh, have a population that's inoculated, more than 90%, then the chances of having contact with people who have illness is markedly reduced. And so those social networks that we all know so well, uh, operating on a microbiological level, don't get a chance to take hold. And that's called herd immunity. So if you're susceptible, if you're a susceptible person like an unvaccinated child living in an environment uh, like we have with more than, we have about 90% plus uh, immunised population in Australia, then you are in fact um, very unlikely to come across somebody with measles and therefore you are in fact, as one of those 10%, much safer. Of course, you're safer because the rest of the population has chosen to be vaccinated and if the rest of the population didn't choose to be vaccinated then the herd immunity would da- be down and you're, you're, as a person you would be highly vulnerable again. So herd immunity is a, a, is a, is a theory that um, immunologists can use game theory on, mathematical projections on, all sorts of things. You have a look, it's, it's fascinating because once the percentage gets down below a certain amount in a certain population with a certain type of infectiousness then the, the uh, illnesses recur very um, significantly. So so herd, herd uh, immunity is, is really very, very important. Now, the Australian College of Physicians, um, I had a look at their statement about immunisation, and I'll just read you what they've said. Quote, uh, childhood uh, immunisation rates in Australia and New Zealand have risen over the last decade to levels comparable to almost any other Western country. Polio has been eliminated from the Western Pacific region since 2000, and measles is approaching elimination. However, if vaccination rates drop before diseases are eliminated, they will return. For example, recent measles outbreaks have occurred in Australia and New Zealand and other countries in under-vaccinated populations. So we, we know there's been a rise in the vac- vaccination refusers, or they, they, I believe the term is anti-vaxxers. Well, I'll use that term. I think it's a term that people use. Um, and in, the, in Western countries, uh, as, correct me if I'm wrong, the way I see it is a lot of that has been driven uh, over the last 10 years by some published data that came out of England, which was later found to be fraudulent, linking uh, measles immunisation with autism. Now, 15 years later, that has been debunked and there's been a massive, uh, large group population. The initial work was done on 12 
people. There have been massive thousands of um, people now uh, looked at, followed up, and really there is World Health Organisation level <coughs> level uh, statements available saying that there is no increased risk of autism with vaccinations. Not, not just debunked, but the author of the report was struck off. Okay, that's so, right. So a, a previously highly regarded um, medical practitioner was found to have committed medical fraud mm. and was struck off. Now, that is the ultimate um, uh, basic... That, that, that's, that's about as bad as it can get mm. for, for a doctor. And and it seemed, nevertheless, it seems to have kind of taken hold, doesn't it? Um, there's been a and there's there's been a celebrity aspect to this. People have some very famous people have, have been championing this link and championing the risk. There's also another group I think who come at it from um, a uh, libertarian perspective that the government shouldn't tell me what to do for me and my child. There's another group who uh, believe that big pharma is behind the push for this and is making money from the injections. Uh, there is another group who believe the risks are side effects and there are some minor side effects from all immunizations it has to be said there's a list of those on the physician's website as well but the that the, the, the um, side effects are onerous and worrying and so there's a number of there's a number of groups and i've been thinking about what actually uh how you how you bring those groups perhaps back into the fold if you like because this is quite worrying if we do have reduced immunization in our population as a whole then we are going to see more measles uh, outbreaks, and I've, I found um, an interesting piece of research in in Germany where they uh, a group uh, was looking at the attitudes towards vaccination, and they did an online um, survey and experiment where they they laid the information and the facts about vaccination um, into uh, into two different uh, cases and they sent them out to a whole lot of volunteer uh, people who are in the community, general community to answer questions and say what they thought about their intention to vaccinate. What, in other words, you've given me some information. Does your information make it more likely that I will vaccinate my child or less likely? And they did two different groups. And the group that uh, looked that said, look, your child is likely to be unwell, your, um, you know, measles is awful, you might get these side effects. They had a certain rate of uh, saying, I'll get my child vaccinated. But if you added um, the, the in, uh, information about herd benefit and that other people could get ill and that um, society as a whole benefited and particularly if you ended with the sentence if you get vaccinated you can protect others who are not vaccinated they had a much larger percentage of saying okay I'll, I'll, I'll agree you've convinced me I thought that was very interesting Isn't that part of the rationale behind a certain segment of anti-vaxxers beliefs though they, they're relying on everybody else doing the right thing to avoid their own child being vulnerable to infection. And to me, an analogy might be, uh, you know, if, if you go out onto the roads and you drive like a complete idiot, but everybody else is doing the right thing, you're still much safer than if everybody else on the roads is driving like a complete idiot. So the herd immunity can work both for and against the argument, depending on how you frame it. Absolutely. And the immunisation... Um uh, literature refers to that as free riding. There's a word for that they call it free riding. In other words, you're actually relying on herd immunity to keep you safe. Whereas, in fact, uh, if the, if that changes and a lot of people do get measles, then your your child or you may be at risk. Anabolics, how much do you think this incorporates uh, an anti-science shift, there, uh, a lack of trust of uh, of science, so that there are 
You, you, I mean, you, you, you come across this not infrequently, people who actually say, well, you know, I just don't believe it. Um, um, it I think you might be right. That might be the basis of quite a lot of that um, opinion. There has, I guess, if you, look, if you stand back and with a big wide-angle lens, you do see uh, a landscape where uh, the consumer is um, more driven and more central in, the, in medical discussions than they were 30 years ago. That's inevitably true. Doctors are questioned more than they ever were, you know, it's all, and that's all good. That's all fantastic. And I think we should be working on things that we can justify where our voices are only one in a group of health professionals you might approach. But there is, I guess, a more sceptical approach towards uh, maybe medical and scientific knowledge. I think that might play a role, but some of the some of the information I was reading were people feeling very very angry about being told what to do and feeling very um, strongly that they were actually. I mean, obviously these are people who love their children, they care about their children, they want the best for them, and they think they're doing the best for them. So, I think if we're going to try and improve the um, the number of vaccinated children, you know, in in our state, it doesn't do us any good to um, ignore that perspective and be you know uh and be completely dismissive without answering the questions factually i think we have to answer those questions factually i know so uh, do you do you see a lot of anti-science in well, your practice well no i no well perhaps uh in, in some respects, uh, things self-select. So the people who come and see me may not be necessarily anti-science, but uh, I certainly hear about this. And, uh, and I, I think that orthodox medicine is confronted with a particular task, which is to um, engage more with those who are sceptical, dubious, mm-hmm. those who don't accept the, the message. And I think that there's been a shift away from a... Uh, this um, almost paternalistic approach that medicine has had, where you know what the you know the doctor is right, uh, and I think now it, it is very much an interaction between doctor and consumer, and I think that it's terribly important that we engage and that we don't marginalise those who, for whatever reasons, informed or ill-informed, are opposed to vaccination, and as you say, draw them back into um, well. Engage. You may not be able to. It's very hard to change somebody's mind. But, um, you know, we're all part of the one community, even if not everyone is part of the herd. I don't see a lot of necessarily anti-science, but I see a a rise in alternative interpretations of science. I mean, you've alluded to yourself, uh, anabolics with the continued citation of the autism uh, literature in relation to measles vaccine. But, you know, I I see patients uh, whose well-meaning children have brought them in and they've got a classical history of, you know, what's banned or obvious, as we'd say, history of Alzheimer's disease. And the, the family have come in and they're armed with reams of printouts from the internet which have shown that, you know, the overload of this particular metal ion can cause Alzheimer's disease and they're insisting that, you know, despite the classical history, this is not Alzheimer's, it's got to be this because I read it on the internet and therefore the treatment is treating with this particularly toxic chemical that removes this particularly toxic metal. So... It's very dangerous having access to so much information without being able to run it through a critical filter. And I suspect that part of what we're 
possibly labelling as anti-science is people, uh, you know, well-educated people doing their own research, but uh, having questioning on maybe the... it's questioning science, yeah. and mm. and I think also we're living in a time when some of these illnesses are just not known to people, and they haven't seen they haven't seen the results. Uh, I remember I'm old enough to remember working in the old Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital and seeing people who who were living in iron lungs from from polio. You know, this is this is not that long ago. It really isn't. It's a generate <clears throat> couple of generations ago. And uh, by extension, like I, I too recall seeing people in iron lungs from polio, and uh, now you have this terrible situation in Pakistan and uh, and parts of Afghanistan, yeah. where aid workers going around vaccinating people in remote villages are being murdered, being murdered. because mm. it's considered to be um, a plot by Western governments to um, uh, to influence uh, the people, and uh, and uh, and so vaccination is a dirty word for all sorts of different reasons um, in different parts of the world. And we're seeing the emergence of polio in those very countries. So it's pretty bloody tragic. It is. Well, I guess it's, it was um, reassuring to me to, to read that the thought of may, maybe that's the way to go to uh, publicise and to educate on the benefits of herd immunisation as a way of keeping other people safe. That seems to be a way that some people can um, you know, live with the immunisation thing that otherwise they may not be able to live with or don't, don't want to choose. So that may be a, an educational challenge for us over the next few years. Three... Uh, SK, tell us about Infinitely Polar Bear. This is a film I've been wanting to see for some time, Anabolics. I, I went to see a screening of Still Alice at around this time last year, and there was a trailer for this film shown. And I thought, oh, this would be a great film to talk about on radiotherapy. But uh, it's taken me a while to track it down. I don't think it did particularly well at the cinema and indeed didn't have much of a wide release. I, in fact, I'm not sure it was uh, screened at all in Australia. I think in it might have come on the festivals, I think. But I don't, yeah, I don't think it probably Yeah, I mean, it was, it was first screened at one of the Sundance festivals just done a few Sundances uh, around the world, and it's uh, been acclaimed in some quarters. Uh, but I, I didn't really engage with the film myself. It was, mm-hmm. I suppose, you'd describe it as a slice of life drama. It, it mm-hmm. takes a year out of a life of, the, of a family in the US and, and shows what happens to them. But slice of life to me, in, in relation to this film, means that it uh, was an excuse not to have any real character arcs. Mm-hmm. Like nobody really changes. Mm-hmm between the start and the end of the film other than the main character's willingness to reliably take his medication perhaps but there's no real growth in any of the characters and no real adequate plot resolution at the end so you know slice of life is is literally that there's uh, there's no conclusion however the plot uh, the film's set in the 1970s and the main character is uh, played by Mark Ruffalo who's uh, recently had some very acclaimed outings in Spotlight, was it? Mm-hmm. The uh, sex abuse film of the Catholic Church. But he plays a, a man living in Boston in the 1970s who suffers from bipolar disorder. Through a voiceover at the start of the film given by his daughter, we learn that uh, he was diagnosed with bipolar when he was in college in the 1960s. Uh, That wasn't enough at the time to stop the woman that he fell in love with from marrying him, and they've gone on and and had two children. Uh, We first meet them in the 1970s, where the main character's in the the grips of a uh, manic relapse of bipolar disorder, and he's uh, hospitalised involuntarily, and at that point his wife decides to take the kids and, uh, and move out. And in order to uh, be able to afford to look after her two young children in the absence of a, of a breadwinner, 
the, the estranged wife decides that she wants to enrol in, in an MBA uh, business course and get a qualification to get a good job to provide for the family. And uh, the trade-off in this is she can't get into an MBA locally in Boston. She has to move to New York and do this. And uh, the barrier is her ability to look after the kids in that circumstance. She's required to move out for 18 months. And on that basis, she asks her estranged partner who's recovering from his mental illness episode at that point to move back in and take care of his two young daughters, uh, whereas the wife would return on the weekends to, to maintain contact with the family. And the drama revolves around his uh, the way in which he does that, the way in which he cares for his young children, uh, the somewhat chaotic manner in which he parents them and in some ways is parented himself by his two daughters who are parentified during it. Uh, they're shown as being quite embarrassed by some of his behaviours. He's socially inappropriate at times when meeting the girls' friends outdoors on one occasion. He neglected to wear pants, so his behaviours mark him out as, as somewhat odd to both his neighbours and the, uh, the friends of his children. Uh, he degenerates into living in squalor in his apartment to some extent because he takes on numerous projects and doesn't follow them through. When uh, his wife, at the end of the film, nears graduation from her MBA, uh, the Mark Ruffalo character hopes that she will be able to return home and live with them as a family once more, but it becomes revealed at that time that uh, since she left, he's never been taking his lithium which is a, a common dynamic that we see in people who are diagnosed with bipolar. They're reluctant to take medications for various reasons. Uh, at that point, a, a form of ultimatum is, is issued. He ends up taking his lithium once more, and at the end of the film we see uh, you know, his wife in a, in a decent job, still in New York, but sending money back to send both of the kids to, uh, to good private schools. And that's sort of it. You know, that's the film. Uh, I suppose there's a sort of happy ending. Uh, I have some issues with the way in which the character with bipolar disorder was portrayed in this film, and it's, it's a sort of a common erring, I find, on the part of filmmakers to show people with bipolar as sort of creative free spirits who are to some extent misunderstood or just eccentric. Now, we've seen it in uh, films from the 1980s, such as Mr Jones, which had Richard Gere in a oh, terrible please. film. Where, oh, please. You know, the psychiatrist, female psychiatrist, falls in love with him and, you know, views his illness as a, as a personality quirk as well. Uh, we've seen it in uh, other films such as Silver Linings Playbook, which I... Mm -hmm. Got critical acclaim, but I hated that <coughs> film. It was loathsome, loathsome film. It was portrayed as a comedy, and when I watched it, you know, mm. people were laughing during scenes of what I interpreted That's as what being flawed mental too. illness. I wasn't that extraordinary. It yeah. really was. So, really, to my mind, this is one of a group of films that tend to trivialise bipolar mm. disorder in particular mm. uh, and minimise the, uh, the really dramatic effects it has on personal and family lives. Mm. I started with some hope when I was watching the film because we do see him uh, after his initial breakdown in a horrible, stereotypical psychiatric hospital. He's stooped, he's shuffling, he's put on weight, he looks zombified, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a terrible anti-psychiatry film. Mm -hmm. uh, the next thing we know, however, he's trimmed down and he's back to some semblance of normality, but uh, we, we're led to understand as the film unloads is that part of what has, what's has enabled him to do that is the fact that he's not taking his meds. Mm. So it sends a, mm. a terrible message to people with mm. uh, a serious illness who need medication to keep it under control. Mm. 
Uh, bipolar is sort of very underrated as a mental illness. Uh, you know, it, it occurs on a spectrum. There's certainly very severe forms, but there's people with lesser degrees of, of bipolarity. But the average age at which people are diagnosed with bipolar, uh, I'm told, is about 32. And the average delay between onset of symptoms and the diagnosis being made is about eight years. And that's a terrible gap where people can do a lot of damage to themselves and their lives and their relationships and their employment. I think the delay in diagnosis is at least partly driven by the natural history of bipolar. You know, people in their, in their teens and 20s, they tend not to get the manic elevations, but they present initially with recurrent depressive episodes. So they get misdiagnosed as having a unipolar depressive illness. Uh, other possible explanations for this delay in diagnosis is some of the behaviours that we see in people with bipolar, particularly the milder forms, can get written off as forms of youthful exuberance and normal adolescent or teenage type behaviour, you know, particularly when we're looking at uh, you know, substance abuse as either a coping mechanism or as a symptom of illness. This film itself, again, it's difficult to make excuses for it from the perspective of, of Hollywood because it's actually an insider story. Uh, it's... I found out when I was researching this film on the internet that it's very much uh, an autobiographical piece on the part of the lady who directed and wrote it, uh, a woman called Mia Forbes, who herself was raised in Boston, uh, the child of a father with bipolar disorder and a mother who travelled interstate to pursue business careers and, in fact, went on to become uh, the first African-American uh, founder of a woman's uh, in, of an investment house in, in the US. So very much autobiographical. Uh, the, one of the two daughters that we see in the film is clearly intended to be Mia Forbes herself and, in fact, Mia Forbes' daughter by the film's producer uh, actually plays one of the daughters in this film. So it's really very much autobiographical. But it's, it seems to me to be portrayed as a film that portrays her memories of childhood very much through rose-coloured glasses. You know, uh, the father, if the Mark Ruffalo character is intended that way, is portrayed very much as, a, as an eccentric but lovable big bear of a man. Uh, the the rage and the family disruption and the tension which must have accompanied the uh, the family breakdown in particular seem very much underplayed. So uh, it was almost as though the the director and writer were trying to to do a bit of therapy herself by making this film was the impression that I got. For those of our listeners who aren't uh, you know familiar with uh, bipolar disorder, most of us are familiar with the concept of of unipolar depression. You know, most of us, even if we've never been clinically depressed, will be very familiar with negative emotions and having periods in our life when things are tough and that we experience sustained, lowered mood. It's much less common, perhaps, for us in normal everyday life to experience sustained periods of elevated mood, perhaps when we're on sabbatical, but <laughs> otherwise... It's when Melbourne wins. When Melbourne wins. So that's, that's generally a fleeting uh, elevation of mood and, and very rare. It probably wouldn't meet the, uh, the criteria. But simplistically, bipolar disorder can be thought of as an illness where in addition to periods of lowered mood, people get sustained periods of either euphoria uh, or, or irritability. And in addition to this, they experience uh, increased energy. They feel like they have boundless energy and can take on new projects. They're often... Uh, 
increasingly productive and active during periods of at least early elevation. They have a decreased need for sleep. They're distractible by things and they can experience uh, inflated self-esteem as well, which leads them to uh, undertake things which, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, would appear to be ill-advised. So because of boundless self-esteem and boundless confidence, they tend to indulge in risk-taking behaviours, which might include driving cars at high speed or spending increased amounts of money going into debt that you can't afford to service. Sexual behaviour. Sexual behaviour, drug-taking behaviour, getting into fights because of interpersonal conflict, uh, excessive pursuit of of pleasure, essentially. And this can cause devastating consequences if you're in a job. Mm. Uh, it can cause loss of jobs. It can cause loss of uh, relationships uh, in its extreme form. Mania can cause you to become, frankly, psychotic. People mm. develop yeah. uh, you know, grandiose delusions, uh, you know, clearly false beliefs, but relate to your specific special abilities. Uh, an example from a patient I know very well is uh, a fellow who, when he becomes manic... <coughs> develops ideas on how to solve the world's energy crisis and uh, his idea which he was applying to various banks to finance when I first met him was to launch a system of orbital mirrors into orbit Mm. and these mirrors would collect the sun's rays and superheat Mm. bodies of water to generate steam and it was causing immense damage to his reputation by going to banks and pitching this awful business Mm. plan which was very very grandiose with him at its centre. Uh, people with mania don't like being treated typically because it actually feels good to be euphoric mm-hmm. for extended periods of time. So one of the challenges we face as psychiatrists is to try and engage people who are having the time of their lives in many respects uh, into a, a course of treatment that will bring them back down to the level of the pack. But I don't think this film, uh, Anabolics, does uh, bipolar disorder any great favours. No, it's not, not, a, not a 9 out of 10 from you, by the sound of it? No, I'd give it a bare pass if that. Ruffalo's performance was good. Equally, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for this, but it was in the category, again, of best musical or comedy. Oh, you know? really? So that's how the, uh, the awards participants received this film as well. Not good. Isn't that interesting? Was uh, Silver Linings Playbook a comedy or musical category nominee too? I can't remember now. I think it was certainly a comedy category, mm. uh, yeah. Uh, I, I remember you, you brought back a really strong memory of going back to that that film and just sitting there with everyone else laughing around me and I was just grabbing my chest thinking, what are you doing laughing at this man? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> it, was, it was sold as a comedy. You're absolutely and right. Again, you know, it trivialises mental illness from that perspective as well. That's right. Look, thanks, Mixif. While you were talking, I just remembered if there are uh, children, young people who have a parent who is mentally ill or they want to get some more advice about that, there is an organisation in Australia called COPMI, C-O-P-M-I, which stands for Children of Parents with a Mental Illness. You can find them on, on the um, web at copmi c-o-p-m-i dot net dot au and they've got lots of online information for managing and helping you with supporting you if you've got a parent who's unwell so all right look thanks guys we better hand over the um the bunsen burners are going on the white coats are being donned and the einstein brilliant people are ready to go so thank you so much sk mcziff thank you ken for keeping us airborne and we'll see you all next week You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.